We were talking about presence and absence, themes of presence and absence. We've been looking at the early chapters of Acts. The next several weeks we're going to continue in Acts, but we're going to shift our lens a little bit. We're going to look at the earliest um, record of the church through the lens of suffering and healing. Okay? Those are the themes we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks, suffering and healing. This next series is called Wounded Healer, and ultimately we're going to be talking about how to follow the suffering Jesus. So I want to invite you to turn to Acts. This is the early record of the Christian church. This is the story of the formation of the church. This is after uh, Jesus' earthly ministry. He has ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father. The disciples, the followers of Jesus, have been filled with the Holy Spirit. They're beginning to um, proclaim the message of the resurrection of Jesus. And we're beginning to see men like Peter emerge with a whole new level of courage and power and leadership. It's only been one um, one chapter since Peter and John kind of took their first hit as early followers of Jesus, and they spent their first night in jail. They were jailed by religious and civic authorities following the healing of a crippled man who was uh, unable to walk since birth. They get out of jail the next morning, and in an effort to control this radically changing perspective of the people about Jesus... I mean, they called for his crucifixion a month ago, and now they're beginning to turn and realize that he is the Son of God. The Jewish Supreme Court, so to speak, forbids Peter and John and the rest of the apostles from speaking or from preaching anymore about Jesus. But, as Peter says, we can't help it. We can't help but continue to talk about all that we have seen and heard. The powerful presence of God has become personal for Peter and John and the others. They're simply compelled to share it with others. And sharing their message becomes easy in this sense. People are coming to them. They're not even having to, like, go out and start awkward conversations. People are coming to them, right? The reputation of the early Christian church is so strong that people are becoming Christians every day. They are seeking out the leaders of the church, and they are converting and becoming Christians every day. Let's look at chapter 5, verse 15. As a result, Luke writes, as a result of this huge momentous start of the church, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on mats and beds so that, listen, at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Isn't that amazing? Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits. And all of them were healed. Okay, so the dominant impact of the Christians in this culture at this time is holistic healing of people. Both physically sick people and spiritually sick people are healed. And this is the reputation that the early Christians get. They are known as powerful healers. The early Christians are powerful healers. And it's not actually them. It's the presence of God in them, right? They're healing by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus for the glory of God the Father. But this is what they're known for. This is the phrase, the church is known for healing. What is the church in our culture in our day known for? What are Christians at this time in history, in this part of the world, what do we what do we know? What's our reputation? What if we were known as healers in the midst of a worldwide viral crisis? What if we were known as healers in the midst of a worldwide human dignity crisis? 
Let's keep reading, and as we continue to read in in Acts chapter 5, I want to encourage you to keep these two words in mind, suffering and healing, suffering and healing. Peter and all the apostles are being confronted with remarkable suffering. How are they responding? They're healing everybody. They're healing everybody. Luke continues with verse 17. Then the high priest and his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. So the high priest, the, most, the highest ruler of the Jewish establishment, is, is uh, he's a member of this party called the Sadducees. He's full of jealousy. They arrested the apostles. They arrest the apostles. They put them in a public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, the angel said, and tell the people about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and they began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, which is the full assembly of the elders of Israel. They sent to the jail for the apostles. But check out this drama here. On arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. They went back and they reported, we found the jail securely locked. The guards were standing at the doors, but when we opened the doors, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and they brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them, which is amazing. Because it's not the people being arrested who are worried about getting stoned for heresy. Being stoned was the punishment for heresy, speaking the lies about God. It's the people doing the arresting that are concerned about being stoned for heresy. Verse 27, the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin and questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalt him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. What's Peter saying? He's saying, you killed Jesus, God raised him from the dead, and now he wants to forgive you of your sins. That's the message. Then Peter says, we're witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious. The the Greek word there is they were torn apart, and they wanted to put them to death. Notice in the Bible, there's these frequent links between feeling envy and feeling jealousy and wanting to kill people. (laughs) Feeling envy or jealousy leading to... Wanted to kill somebody. Starts with Cain and Abel, goes all the way through the whole Bible. A little bit more. Verse 34. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin in order that the men be put outside for a little while. So he's a part of the Sanhedrin. He's part of the ruling court. He's part of a different party. He's a Pharisee, not a Sadducee. He's honored. He stands up. Verse 35. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel... Carefully consider what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos, he gives, now he gives two examples. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody. About 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. His followers were dispersed. It came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census, led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed. His followers were scattered. 
Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in. They had them flogged, which means whipped with these multi-strapped whips with bone and metal at the end. They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, listen to this, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus was the Messiah. All right, quick review. That was a lot of scripture. Here's what just happened. Peter and John and the other apostles, they get arrested for the second time. But in the middle of the night, an angel breaks them out of jail. Do they scatter? No. They go right back to doing what they were doing before they got arrested. Then they're pulled in by the authorities. The guards are careful. They don't want to get stoned for doing this. The crowd has turned, right? But when the, when the apostles come in before the Sanhedrin, they are chastised. They don't cower, though. They stand in courage. They they explain their message. This infuriates the the Jewish leadership. So they pick up the phone and they order some more Roman crucifixions. That's what they do. We're going to kill these guys just like we killed Jesus. But then one of their own stands up and, and convinces them to embrace the strategy of wait and see. Let's just wait and see what happens. They call the apostles back in. They yell at them some more. They flex their power by whipping these guys, brutally whipping these guys. And then the apostles are led out rejoicing. This is, this, this is what doesn't fit. I hope this startles us a bit. They just got beat up bad. And they go out rejoicing, and they go right back to the temple courts, and they keep on preaching. Okay? So let me highlight two details and ask two questions. First detail I want to point out is the inside of Gamaliel. Who, by the way, Paul says was his teacher. Before Paul becomes a Christian, before Paul starts following Jesus, he's in Gamaliel's school. He's he's like Gamaliel's star student. Gamaliel's insight is this. Activities or movements of human origin fail, but movements of God cannot be stopped. Activities which are powered by human effort fail, but activities empowered by God cannot be be stopped. So here's the question for us. Here's the question that corresponds with that insight. In what or in whom are we placing our hope? Gamaliel, who's one of the Sanhedrin, ironically points out a clear distinction between human movements and movements of God, between, we might say, agendas of men and agendas of God, or power structures set up by men and the kingdom established by God. Gamaliel's comments are ironic because he names two other so-called prophets who threaten the leadership structure, are killed, and their followers scatter. But he's making these comments in reference to Jesus, who also confronted the uh, leadership structure, was killed. But guess what? His followers aren't scattering. Did you notice that? In fact, more of them are coming into the fold every single day, and they're wielding the very power of God. How do we know it's the power of God? Because they're healing people with it. They're using it for good. They are healing the sick. They're healing the spiritually broken. They're engaging the world's suffering with healing. 
They are fearless, they are humble, and they're not going anywhere. They're not going anywhere. Gamaliel's words serve as a bit of a self-indictment. It's tragic. He says, if this movement is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God, and that's exactly what he and the rest of the Jewish leadership end up doing. They already killed Jesus. Now they're whipping the apostles. They're essentially handing over their legitimate place of leadership among the Jewish people to the apostles, including these uneducated fishermen and a former tax collector. They will take the place of the true leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel of the people of God. They will lead the people back to God, not these men in authority. They have surrendered any kind of credibility that they've had because they're fighting against God. <clears throat> we should ask ourselves, what should we learn from this, from Gamaliel's insight? We should ask ourselves this question that's implied by Gamaliel's observation. In what or in whom am I placing my hope for healing? In other words, what do I believe to be the ultimate solution for the suffering that surrounds me on every side? Friends, let's be careful to place our hope in Christ and in the kingdom of God. Let's be careful not to place our highest hope in or to pledge our highest allegiance to any other movement, any other political party, any other agenda, Lines are being drawn all over our country. Flags are being raised. New bumper stickers are getting slapped on cars and trucks declaring what side we're on. I'm with this group, which in our culture implies I'm against that group because everything in our culture is extreme polarities nowadays. This is a lot. There's a lot of passion um, behind the issues affecting us today. And there should be a lot of passion behind these issues because we're not playing around. Right? These are life and death, death issues. We're massive cultural shifts affecting schools and employments and churches and government. Every part of the way we live has been affected in the last three months. We're talking about horrible acts of violence which have eroded for hundreds of years and continue to erode the basic human dignity of actual people. So these are not lightweight issues. And our inability to have real conversations, to listen to the voices of the suffering... And just listen, to deal with even a little bit of complexity has us running to our corners and sharpening our knives and we're dividing. Towns are dividing and families are dividing and churches are dividing. Let's be careful not to identify ourselves more with a political party than we do with the way of Jesus. Let's be careful not to give ourselves so entirely to an agenda or to a platform or to the American ideal that we serve it above God. So please hear me. Please hear me here. I am not saying that any of the issues facing us don't matter. They absolutely matter. I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved in politics or activism. It's clear that we should. It's clear that we should. What I am saying is that Christians should rise above the rules of engagement established by the institutions of human origin. We should be playing better. We should not have to succumb to this, this is the way you do it kind of human arrangement. We should rise above that. We're called to a higher ethic, a greater law. It's love. Institutions with their origin in man will fail. They will all fall short because they're the creations of man. And we're all flawed, and so our best ideas have weaknesses and blind spots. Of course, we who are Christians should advocate. Of course, we should vote. 
Of course we should volunteer. Of course we should work hard. But our only real hope in bringing actual healing to real suffering is Jesus Christ. And our ultimate allegiance, our highest commitment is to Jesus Christ. Friends, our only message is Jesus Christ. If the way I operate in this world is primarily, I said primarily, if the way I operate in this world is primarily as a member of this political party, as a member of this ethnicity, as a member of this specific club, and the way that you operate in this world is primarily as a member of an opposing political party, a different ethnicity, a competing club, then the lines are already drawn, aren't they? They're already drawn. And historically, we have no reason to hope. It has never worked this way before, ever. If this is of human origin, it will fail. But if you and I can come to the table as fellow children of God rescued by Jesus Christ, if that's our core identity, if this is our highest calling, if this is how we operate in the world, broken and blessed and given for others. We are unstoppable. We are unstoppable. We are aligning ourselves with the very mission of God. And those who fight against us will find themselves fighting against God. So the first point is that movements of human origin fail, but movements of God cannot be stopped. And the question that confronts me with this is, where am I placing my hope? In what? In whom am I placing my hope? May we place our hope in the creative, sacrificial, loving, restorative movement of God. Here's a second detail. Do you see the apostles' response to being beat up, to being flogged, to being arrested and jailed and physically beaten, and probably the worst part, to suffering disgrace in an honor culture? To suffering disgrace. They rejoice. <laughs> so here's the second question. Why are we rejoicing? What is causing us to rejoice? I think easily the most challenging part of the story is the apostles' response to their own suffering. Verse 41, Luke writes, The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. It's easy for me to rejoice in my own accomplishments when I demonstrate I'm worthy of the task you entrusted to me. It's easy for me to rejoice in encouragement from others when I get affirmation that you felt it was worth your time to write me a note or give me a phone call. What if I suffered disgrace? And not the disgrace because I sinned, but disgrace because I was living in obedience to God. What if to the best of my ability I was obeying the teachings of Jesus and I suffered disgrace? Would I see that suffering as worth it? Would I see that suffering as worth it? Would I experience joy because of it? Would I rejoice because I had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name? When the apostles respond to their suffering by rejoicing, they show us that this thing they're a part of, this message that they're preaching, this movement that they're in, it's not about them. It's not about them. This is not, to quote Gamaliel, of human origin. Furthermore, the apostles' rejoicing shows us what they truly value. What's important to them? Following Jesus. That's what's important to them. They are so deeply committed to following Jesus, to living in the way of Jesus, that when what happens to Jesus 
happens to them, they rejoice, even if it's suffering, even if they get the same kind of wounds on their back as Jesus did. That's a reason to, to rejoice. The disciples are not detached healers. They are not privileged healers. They're not healing at a safe distance. They're not indirectly involved. Friends, their backs are bleeding as they continue preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in the temple courts. Their backs are bleeding as they continue preaching the gospel. They are wounded healers. It's hard to argue that they've got any ulterior motive. You know they're genuine. How do I know they're genuine? Because they're experiencing suffering for their message. They're in the middle of a broken, messed up, sick, corrupt, violent world, and their hope for healing is Jesus. Jesus is their message. And so they, what they will carry into the suffering is the healing power of Jesus. That's what they'll bring to the battle. And in the process, they too will suffer like Jesus did. They will. But as they faithfully follow Jesus, who is the wounded healer, their hearts will rejoice because they know that they are a part of a movement that even the gates of hell cannot stop. Amen? This is the redemptive arc of history. This is the love of God. It will not be stopped. When we oppose it, when we think our way is better, we will be stopped. When we submit to it, to the creative, loving, redemptive, sacrificial way of Jesus, we are in alignment with the, with the movement of God. And it will not be stopped because he will bring it to completion. God will restore all things. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Have mercy on us. Um, our own... Um, Self-centeredness causes us to, to choose um, substitute solutions for deep problems of brokenness and sin. I pray for the grace. Stay faithful to the message of Jesus Christ. May this church demonstrate it in action. May it take root in our lives. May we extend your love to others, God, may Christians today be known as healers in Jesus' name.